Would you please join me in praying? Jesus, I thank you for your promise to never leave us alone and that you are here with us in this place. Lord, I pray for your spirit to open our hearts to receive the gospel. And as the preacher this morning, I pray for your help, that you would help me be faithful and true to your word. And I ask it in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. It's one thing to have a valuable gift. It's another thing to have a valuable gift and appreciate it as such. What the Feast of Pentecost does is a couple of things. One is it reminds us that the Holy Spirit has been given as a gift to the church. It reminds us of that truth, but it also teaches us to appreciate his presence, that he is here with us, and even builds a holy expectation of experiencing him. And so this is an important Sunday. Jesus promised to send help, and it arrived on Pentecost, on that, that great day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. And in John 14, chapter, the chapter we just heard from, verse 16, Jesus says, I will, send, I will ask the Father to send another helper. The ESV translates it helper. And I'd like you to consider this phrase this morning. I need help. I once was taught that there are four, the four most powerful phrases in the English language are, you were right, I was wrong, please forgive me, and I love you. And I, would, I want to suggest that we add a fifth to that, which is, I need help. And the thing that makes those, those phrases so powerful is both how it affects the hearer. When someone says, I need help, we immediately lean in. My daughter, I was explaining this to my daughter um, yesterday, and she said, yeah, 3 a.m., someone knocked on my door in my dorm. It was the girl across, across the hall I didn't know. And she said, I need help, and looked desperate. And something, her roommate was sick or something. And Ellie felt immediately gratified, like, wow, I guess I, I can do something. And also, either that person is in a desperate situation, or they're just very humble to ask for help. And so that's the thing with these, these powerful phrases. When you hear someone say them, it draws you in. But when you say them, it requires a certain level of humility. I was sitting with the Holy Spirit one morning this week, and I was saying, Lord, how would you like me to enter into this text for Pentecost? And I felt like that idea of, of saying, I need help. And then interestingly enough, I opened my email, and our new bishop elects, Alex, who's a very humble man, Alex Farmer, had an email on the subject header. It was sent to the four deans of our diocese. I'm one of them. It said, I need your help. And I was like, oh, yeah. I just experienced the very thought I had of what, what it feels like when someone says, I need your help. But for those of us who are adults, now children are great at asking for help, but once we get to a certain level, we feel like we shouldn't have to, or we're too proud to ask for help, or we think, I, I want to be able to say, I got this, I can do this, I'm strong enough, I'm good enough, and gosh darn it, people love me. You know, like, I, I want to say that it, I have the resources within me, even if I don't. I wonder this morning, when was the last time that you asked for help of another person? Or when was the last time you asked for help of God? And you said, God, I need your help here. I can't do this without you. I need your help. The Greek word that is translated as helper is parakletos, from which we get paraclete. It's a compound word, para and kletos from kaleo, which means to call, and para is alongside. It means the one called alongside of. 
And I looked up literally 25 different English translations of, the, of that word, uh, different Bible translations, and I found a common grouping of translations. One was helper, another was comforter, another was companion, another was paraclete, they just transliterated the word over, another was counselor, another was advocate. And the ESV and the NIV pick helper. But I, I want to caution you, don't, when you hear helper, don't think assistant, lackey, apprentice, somebody that's going to run errands for you, because that's not what parakletos means. In fact, Jesus in this text is saying, I will ask the Father to send another paraclete to you, implying that he, Jesus, is one, which actually in John's epistle, 1 John uh, 2, verse 1, it's one of the comfortable words after the confession in our liturgy. Um, in, in there it says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate, paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So not just a mere assistant or helper like that, but the true help that we need, someone who is an advocate. It even, it even picks up the legal language of a courtroom, almost like the word counselor can mean lawyer, the one who is, is providing legal counsel, is bringing a defense or a prosecution, who is um, able to understand everything and bring it before the judge. Think bigger picture like that. And what happened here is on the Easter Sunday, the first Easter, Jesus rose bodily forever to be risen and visited for 40 days with people, disciples, at one point a group of 500 at once. And he, and he told them about the kingdom and he showed the proof of his resurrection. And then he ascended to the Father and 10 days later, so 40 days after Easter, which is where we get penta, the prefix, Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, the helper came. Jesus made this promise and he sent the helper. Help has arrived. Now, I'm going to be in John 14, and it's on page 909 in a pew Bible. I'm going to point out a number of verses here. I always try to draw out from what is in the text so we can understand God's Word rather than me read my ideas into it. I want us to be faithful to what's in here. So I'm going to point out a number of things. And I found as I was looking at this text that help has arrived, and it has arrived in several categories. It has arrived in the category of knowing, of doing, and being. And we're going to look at those three things. Help has arrived for knowing. Let's start with that. I'm on page 909 in the Pew Bible. This is John chapter 14. And let me begin by getting the context. They're in the upper room. This is the night that Jesus is going to be arrested. He has had the Last Supper. He's washed their feet. He has taught them about a new commandment to love one another as he's loved them. And he has told them multiple times by this point, he's going to be betrayed killed, and on the third day rise, and he's going where they cannot follow, and they're troubled. In fact, John 14, 1 through 6 is often read at funerals. In fact, most of the funerals, memorial services we do here, we read that part of John 14 because he talks about going to prepare a place in the Father's house and to take us into that place with him when we die. But there's more. After he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, you know the way to where you're going, after that whole thing happens, Philip says something that I think either saddens or maybe frustrates Jesus. He says, Lord, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And then he says, Philip, how long have I been with you? And do you not understand yet that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? I take comfort in this, by the way, that Philip, one of the, one of the disciples who spent three years with Jesus, was struggling with the nature of the Trinity. 
How is it that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one being eternally existing in three persons? That's next Sunday, by the way, Trinity Sunday. But it's a great mystery. And here's one of Jesus's uh, core inner team, one of his disciples, and he doesn't get it after three years of being with Jesus. It's hard to understand that, that the way that the Spirit and the Son of God and God the Father are all one. And so Jesus has said, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know who God is, look at me. Look at Jesus. Jesus has revealed to us the Father and also the Spirit. And so help has arrived for knowing God, knowing about Him, but knowing Him personally. And there's an essential unity to God. I and the Father are one, Jesus says. Now, it's interesting because in the the final commandment Jesus gave to His church, the Great Commission from Matthew 28, He says, you know, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them, or baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. And then he ascended to the Father. Well, the way that he's with us is because the helper, the Spirit, has come. And if the Spirit is here, then Jesus is here. And the Father is here because they are one being. Now, we're in that great mystery of the Trinity, but it's so important for us to understand that we have not been left as orphans, as our gospel reading today says. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I've adopted you as sons and daughters. You belong in my house. I'm not abandoning you. I'm going to send the helper who will be present with you forever. This is great, a great encouragement to us. What's interesting is um, in, what is it, verse 17, Jesus says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now remember, he's in the upper room before Pentecost, the event has happened. So he's saying, he's with you here, but he will be in you once the Pentecost event happens, once the helper comes. But the world can't, doesn't know him, can't receive him because it doesn't know him, it doesn't see him, but you do, you do know him. He will be in you. If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you, present with you always, to never leave you or forsake you, as Jesus said. And yet still, we have to be told this. It's not something that we are, it's not always obvious to us. We have to be told that the Spirit is with us. I open the service by talking about radio waves, or think about Wi-Fi. If you pull up your phone and you look at Wi-Fi signals, it's interesting to see what's in the air. In my neighborhood, I live in Pace Island, I have a Wi-Fi router in my house, and I was just trying to troubleshoot it, and once again, I saw the list of all of my neighbor's signals that are present. My new neighbors on the one side, their last name is Miles, and theirs is called Miles To Go. I liked it, cute little name. I know whose signal that is. There's an HOA in Pace Island that has rules, and they send you these letters. The Architectural Design Board, ADB, will send you letters telling you your mailbox isn't black enough, you need to paint it, your yard doesn't look great, you need to trim it, these kind of things. So I named my Wi-Fi signal Pace ADB Surveillance. (laughs) Just wondering what people might think if they turn on their Wi-Fi. They're watching you. They're watching. And they are. But the point is, until someone says, hey, pull up your Wi-Fi signal and look, you have no idea how many things are going on in the air. And Pentecost says, hey, the Spirit is with you. Pay attention to Him. Listen to that small, still voice. He's not yelling at you. He's not forcing Himself upon you. And you can ignore Him for very lengthy periods of time. That doesn't change the fact that He's with you. 
Help has arrived for knowing God. And I've just, as I told you, I've just taught the catechism for six weeks. Question number 88 says, how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? And the answer is a direct quote from Peter's first sermon at that Pentecost day in Acts chapter 2. When, when he explains the gospel of Jesus dying for the sins of people, they're cut to the heart and they say, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent of your sin, trust in the name of Jesus Christ, and you'll be forgiven and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how you receive him. It's by coming in faith, in repentance to Jesus. You receive forgiveness of your sins and the Holy Spirit. And the world doesn't get this. It doesn't know it. But not only that, this this text goes on and says all kinds of interesting things. In verse 21, it says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, we don't see the Holy Spirit, but we see the effects. Jesus said he's like the wind. We don't know where the wind is coming from or where it's going, but we can look out and see that the wind is moving. We, we just sang a song about it. We can feel the wind blowing. We can see the effects. And Christians will say, ah, oh, that was a God thing. God moved in my life in that moment. But an unbelieving world says, ah, there's no God. That's just coincidence, good luck, whatever. They disregard God. They don't believe in him, can't see him. And Jesus says some interesting things in this text. If you read further, he says in verse 23, this is beyond where our gospel reading stopped, but it says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And just like Jesus says, I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me, he says, I will be in you, and you will be in me. In fact, our Eucharistic prayer mentions that as well. We are nourished by the presence of God in our lives. Jesus is in us, and we are in him. We are in Christ, as Paul likes to say. And so, help has arrived for knowing God. And knowing, not about him, knowing personally. He also says in here, he says, when when the helper comes, he will remind you of all the things I, Jesus, have taught you. He will lead you into all truth. For three years, Jesus was teaching them in all kinds of settings, and they were not always taking notes. The Holy Spirit, though, brought to their memory the truth about God and also explained it. You know my background, I think most of you do, that I've had a lot of religion in my life, especially up to my teenage years, And despite that, it didn't make sense. And I can still remember the feeling. I was about 17. I can remember when it went, I went, oh, so I'm a sinner. Jesus died for my sins on the cross. If I repent of my sins and trust in him, I'm forgiven. And then I can have a friendship with God and walk with him in this life. Oh, this book makes sense. That's the Holy Spirit's work. He leads you into that truth. He opens your mind to understand it. And the world has a veil over their eyes. If the Bible doesn't make sense to you, I'm not talking about the complicated passages, and there are some, but the general truth of this is pretty straightforward. But apart from the Holy Spirit's ministry, we don't get it. We need him to lead us into the truth, to open our minds to understand this, and our hearts to want it. But that's what his ministry is. Help has arrived for knowing God and knowing his word. But not just that, for doing. In verse 12, Jesus says, all right, Philip, if you don't believe, at least believe on account of the works, all the signs and wonders, all that I've done in your presence for three years. You've seen the power of God working through me. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 12, 
Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. What? Jesus did some impressive stuff, and he's saying, you will do even greater things. Now, I don't think he means you will do things that are more marvelous or are grander in their, their scope, but I think the scale will be greater to the ends of the earth. When Jesus was earthly on his ministry, he was in one place. So people had to go to him to be healed or ask him to come to them. When the helper came, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And so the gospel is going through the witness of God's people to the ends of the earth. Literally today, there are like a billion Christians on this planet. And down through 2,000 years, how many people have come to faith, even despite persecution and resistance and rulers burning Bibles and trying to stop the church? The Holy Spirit's ministry has worked through the church to do even greater things, greater in the sense of to the ends of the earth. And Jesus said this is what would happen. And so there, is, there are things that we are called to do, evangelizing the world, giving witness to God, but also Jesus' kingdom ministry as a whole. Jesus demonstrated what the kingdom is like and what it looks like to live according to it. He taught them how to seek first the kingdom of God. Read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you'll see a picture of what the kingdom life looks like. And when he says here um, in verse 13 and 14, he says, um, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In my name is not some tag that you add on the end of your prayer to somehow sanctify it or make it more effective. You don't have to say that when you're done praying. You can just stop talking or you can say amen if you want. But to pray in my name means to be in accordance with my character, in accordance with what I care about, to ask for the things Jesus wants to have happen. When we pray like that, he delights to do those things. And so all this is about how do we do the kingdom work? How do we become kingdom people who do the stuff Jesus did, who live like Jesus lived. If Jesus was to be living your life, what kind of a life would that look like? How would he do the job you have? How would he raise the family you're raising? How would he have the relationships and friendships that you have? What would that look like? All of this requires the work of the Holy Spirit in us to help us because we can't do it in our own, our own strength. Help has arrived for doing the kingdom stuff. And each one of us has built within us a search for significance. We want our lives, the things we do, to count for something important, even transcend beyond the number of years we have. We're all thinking about legacy and how does my life count? What does it really matter for? And, and we want to hear, like in the parable, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, in order to have a life of significance, in order to do the things that Jesus cares about that are in his name, it requires the helper. We need the help of the Holy Spirit, and help has arrived for doing. But not only that, help has arrived for being. So consider Jesus in here twice mentions commandments, and actually three times. In verse 15, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In verse 21, verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then a little further down that we didn't read this far, in verse 23, um, it says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And so it sounds like I'm saying doing again, but I'm really talking about being, knowing, doing, and now being, becoming and being the kind of people who by nature, by God's new nature in us, do the things Jesus did. 
It's not about following the rules for the sake of the rules. It's about becoming a person who's, who has the new heart with God's law written on it. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to give you a heart transplant. I'm going to take out your stony, hard heart. I'm going to put a heart of flesh in you. I'm going to write my laws on your heart and cause you to walk in my statutes and my ways. Help has come to make us the kind of people who not only want to do those things, but then are able to do them. And, but it's not automatic. Don't think if I say, come Holy Spirit, all of a sudden I'm going to be a, uh, able to live according to all of God's laws. I have to partner and cooperate with the Holy Spirit. There's work for you and I to do. Paul writes, if you walk according to the flesh, you'll please the desires of the flesh. If you walk according to the Spirit, you'll do the things of the Spirit. And the flesh and the Spirit are at odds with each other. So by the flesh, I mean sinful human desire that remains in us. This is the tension every Christian feels. And we have to cooperate. So texts like Ephesians 5.18 say, don't get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Interesting. It's a command, but it's in the passive tense. Be filled. Like, it doesn't say fill yourself. It says be filled. In other words, God wants to fill you with his spirit, but you have some part to play in receiving what he has. And so we have to be told, do this. Walk according to the flesh. Set your mind on the things above, it says in Colossians 3. So which voice or urge will you obey? And you hear both. And one is louder than the other. And it's not the good one. The flesh is louder And so Christians for years, for two millennia, have realized that if I want to hear the Spirit and I want to cooperate with Him, I have to practice silence and solitude. I have to back away from the noise of the world and the people around me and all the things and the busyness and the to-do list and definitely the devices, put those phones and stuff away, and I have to get still before God. And I have to say, come Holy Spirit, what do you have to say to me? Help me know you. I need help to know you. I need help to do the stuff. I need help to become the kind of person that Jesus was and is. So let me leave you with this application point. I need help. Make that your prayer this week because the helper has arrived and he'll help you know God and he'll help you do the stuff of the kingdom and he'll help you become a kingdom person. I'm going to close with a prayer also that I'm taking out of the catechism Um, This is a prayer for the Holy Spirit's ministry. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful people. Enkindle in us the fire of your love. Direct and rule our hearts in all things. Empower us for witness and ministry. And daily increase in us your gifts and fruit. To the glory of God the Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I invite you to